Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me in this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this second episode of a three-part podcast series on common hematological abnormalities, we'll continue by exploring the basis for neutropenia, neutrophilia, lymphopenia and lymphocytosis. Now please join the conversation with Dr. Thomas Liu, Hematology Advanced Trainee at the Peter McCullum Cancer Centre, who has special interest in novel therapies for hematological disorders. To attack on neutropenia, uh, yeah. I see patients with neutropenia. How do you grade neutropenia? Take us through that. What's your approach? Yeah, so so grading neutropenia is actually one of the easiest ones. You start at two, and you count back from in point fives, and that's that's the name of the game. So one point five to two, one to one point five, point five to one, and less than point five. And nearly all of the serious infection risk occurs in that point five and below group, okay. with a modest increased risk in that in the grade two in the grade three point five to one category. Yes, and patients who have a neutrophil count above one, we nearly all consider them to be immunologically normal. You just so um, what would we what should we do in clinical practice if we do see a full blood count and someone's got a mild neutropenia? What what guidance can you give us here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think again, you know, coming back to those emergency red flag things, the first questions, someone who's unwell with neutropenia, um, I think that warrants a discussion with the hematologist or yes. sending them to 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 hospital. And someone who's got a uh, neutrophil count less than 0.1, who's got a fever or may have a fever, they're reporting chills, myalgias. I think that person is best just sent to hospital, don't take any precautions, blood cultures, antibiotics. Um, and of course, the other major red flag would be the presence of blasts on a blood film. Okay. Um, you know, at where, where again, that person just needs to go to hospital and get yeah. assessed or at the very least a phone, pick up the phone and talk to your local. The emergency presentation, yes. Yeah. Are there, are there ethnic variations as well that make you more comfortable uh, when you look at uh, neutropenia? Yeah, definitely. definitely right. So, so you know, that's I've you know briefly talked about the kind of clinically concerning neutropenias, yes. but the the overwhelming neutropenia that we see in clinical practice is a well patient who incidentally has a neutrophil count of say one point five yes. or one point three. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Sometimes these patients will actually be able to tell you that they've had blood tests in the past and their neutrophil count has always been low and, you know, that, that the doctor who tested it then got into a bit of a huff and nothing ever came of it. Or they may even be able to tell you that it's throughout their family people have had these low white blood cell counts because um, there are definitely families that just run with neutrophil counts that are slightly lower than the standard normal ranges of the population. And that's perhaps most true for people of... African ethnicity, who we sometimes term benign ethnic neutropenia. So, uh, but to, to, to make that diagnosis, you really want a well patient. Um, you want to see that the neutrophil count is stable over time. And again, you know, you're, you're especially comfortable making that diagnosis if it constantly sits above 1.0. Okay. The next, the next sort of layer of thinking, um, and, and I, I actually find neutropenia a really challenging clinical case because it's um, a kind of problem that where 90% of people will have a benign cause that either spontaneously self-resolves 
or persists, and is of very little clinical significance. Mm. But there are these there are these boogeymen um, hiding under neutropenia that you contribute contribute up, and patients can be very well um, when they first present. So, some of the other benign causes of neutropenia would be someone who's had a recent viral illness or an you know or an ongoing viral illness. Uh, they'll often drop their neutrophil count and you should just wait for the, the illness to resolve and repeat the counts in a couple of weeks. And the majority of them, they'll normalise. Um, and, you know, of course, you should screen these people for common, common hematinic disorders, B12 folate. Yes. Uh, then, I then sort of would move on to a group which I term the intermediate neutropenias of concern. And so sometime in this group, I would include medications, Yes. Someone who's, say, on methotrexate, yes. who becomes neutropenic, it's worth having a chat with their rheumatologist and finding out whether they need to pause their methotrexate. Um, or, and someone who's on chemotherapy, obviously, they can you know, drop their neutrophil counts. Um, but they're normally going to be pretty well linked in with a, an oncologist. Rheumatoid arthritis would be a red flag. Um, there's the old Talian O'Connor Felty syndrome yes. of severe rheumatoid arthritis, splenomegaly, and, uh, and neutropenia. So someone with, you know, long-standing active rheumatoid arthritis or other immunological conditions, it just does raise your attention a bit more about, about the neutropenia that it may well be immune-mediated. And there's this fascinating condition called cyclical neutropenia. People will report over a two- to three-week cycle. They'll develop mouth ulcers, sometimes skin changes, sometimes lymphadenopathy, and the neutrophil counts drop. And then... For the intervening period, the neutrophil count becomes normal again. They, they feel well. And then two, three, four weeks later, the cycle happens again, which is which is just a fascinating condition. So when I whenever I assess someone with neutropenia, I ask them about that. Do you feel like there's a pattern? Do you, do you get mouth ulcers? Do you, have, do you ever get lumps in the neck or, or, or um, armpits? And do they occur in some kind of cyclical pattern? I haven't it's a rare diagnosis, but a fascinating one. What's the prognosis for that condition? Is that oh, exactly. benign? Yeah, it actually tends to be quite benign. Mm. Um, so these people um, should, if if it's suspected, you, I think this person should be, these kinds of patients should ultimately be referred to a hematologist. There's a specific genetic uh, driver, a mutation in a gene called Elaine. Um, we don't really have a great understanding for why Elaine course of this cyclical manifestation. And what we tend to do with these patients is give them GCSF, okay. you know, essentially neutrophil growth factor um, when we're anticipating that they're going to go through that neutropenic period. And they tend to do pretty well. It tends to have a fairly benign indolent course with appropriate management. Do you see other drugs sometimes causing neutropenia as well? It said that ACE inhibitors can and digoxin yeah. need to get blamed for everything and antithyroid drugs, I guess, can. Do you, do you get referrals for those sorts of, you know, you find patients are on those drugs and it's relatively easy management uh, concern, you're just going to change the drug schedule around a little bit? Yeah, well, sometimes it can be pretty thorny. So um, with uh, with carbimazole and with uh, with clozapine, those would probably be the two really famous causes of agranulocytosis. And they can be tricky to deal with. Um, you know, by the time someone's on clozapine for their psychotic disorder, it's normally pretty serious and they're not on clozapine for no reason. But if the counts are persistently below 0 0.5, um, our advice is nearly always to cease the drug and, cease an, and seek an alternative. Find alternative, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes we can use GCSF support to support them through. 
but um, but but you know if the if the changes are severe, we would normally seek an alternative drug. Um, and then you're absolutely right, Luke. The beyond those two sort of famous classic agranulocytosis cases, almost everything, you know, NSAIDs, antibiotics, yes. um, you know, so anyone who develops sudden onset fairly severe neutropenia in the setting of starting a new medication. You've got to be suspicious that it could be the medication. Thank you for covering And then the... Fo- no, you're gonna, you're, no, no. You're gonna, well, we've got there's, there's just a few more, you know, I mean, the, 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 list, uh, the list goes on in neutropenia, but the, the other dangerous causes to be aware of um, would be acute leukaemia, yes. um, which, you know, most of the time, you should get a clue. There should be blasts in the blood film. There should be there should be low counts in other lineages. But it's not unheard of for an acute leukemia to present with an isolated neutropenia. And there are some other blood conditions, hairy cell leukemia, and a condition called T-cell large uh, granulocytic uh, leukemia um, that, um, that can present with isolated neutropenia. And so when we see these, by the time these patients get referred to us in clinic, we often send off peripheral blood flow cytometry, which can help us to detect a low level of a clonal population like that and help us to go, oh, yes, this is the kind of patient who needs a bone marrow biopsy. So, you know, for the GPs um, and, you know, generalists out there listening, I think my advice would be if you see someone who's who's well with mild neutropenia, you know, above one, you know, you can nearly always defend just a a strategic monitoring, you know, get them, bring them back for another blood in the next couple of weeks. And at the same time, you can send off serology for common viruses, including hep B and hep C and HIV, um, send off the hematinic panel. And if you find that that there's no immediately obvious cause and and the neutropenia is persistent, send them to us. We'll do the full workup. The majority of patients will send back to you and say, this person's just got low neutrophils and that's just them. But then a minority of patients will have a serious condition for which they'll need a bone marrow biopsy and, you know, more more, uh, the more aggressive treatment. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain the term flow cytometry, Tom? What, what do you do with flow cytometry? Yeah. Flow cytometry is some just it's an amazing technology. It sounds um, like dark arts, doesn't it? You're doing something. Yeah, yeah. cell membrane looking and seeing what proteins are hanging off it. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Um, Look, it's an incredibly um, um, powerful technology, flow cytometry. So the I'll try to try to do it justice. So the core principle behind flow cytometry is that the cells are suspended in a fluid and um, passed through tubing that becomes progressively narrower and narrower and narrower until it is the width of a single cell. And now those cells are basically flowing um, in a line in a single cell march. And then they get dripped in front of a laser. And as they pass through the laser, you can kind of imagine if someone was shining a light, as the cell falls through past that light, it basically causes a shadow onto a receiver on the other end. And so, you know, that's the most simple function of flow cytometry. It counts cells. Every time there's a gap in the light, the the machine counts it. The other thing that goes on there is that the light as it passes through the cell scatters because the cell is actually a complex structure that's got a nucleus and all of these organelles in it. And there's a scatter pattern to the light as it passes through the cell to get collected by that receiver. And that can tell us a bit about what the cell is like. So a neutrophil, for example, has a is larger and it has a more 
broad scatter pattern than a lymphocyte, which is smaller and is often uh, has a simpler intracellular sort of landscape and it doesn't scatter the light as much. And then the third dimension to flow cytometry, which is the most powerful, is that we can attach um, antibodies with fluorescent markers attached to them that if they are present on the cell, they will fluoresce and be detectable by the machine. So, for example, you could have an antibody against CD19, which is present on all B cells. And if that gets picked up by the light, you go, well, that cell is a CD19 positive, likely B cell. The other, you know, one of the other things we use for B cells is we can mark them for kappa and lambda, the two light chains. If when we do flow cytometry, we see that there's bucket loads of kappa and no lambda, or bucket loads of lambda, lambda and no kappa, we know that that's odd. And that implies there's probably a clonal population where one cell that's kappa has just expanded to fill out the entire population. Yeah, that's that's my that's my quick summary of flow cytometry, a fascinating technology that broadly speaking enables you to, you know, it helps you to figure out what the cells are, determine if there's clonality, and can often make the diagnosis of a hematological malignancy. Thank, thank you, Tom. That's that's the best description I've heard actually of flow cytometry so thank you very much oh, you're too kind. For putting that in perspective no that's tremendous um, i believe the person who invented flow cytometry this is this is a fact uh, it's a secondhand fact from one of my yeah. professors david ritchie um so credit where credit's due but apparently the person who invented it was trying to um make the perfect paint <laughs> and they, were, they were trying to invent a technology that could detect clots in paint okay um you know, so to see whether the paint was clumpy or not. Anyway, turned out that it had even more uh, more valuable. Use I saw the applicability of it in medicine. Uh, that's a beautiful story too. But I guess the other part of, of you know talking about neutrophils is neutrophilia. Should we do we yeah. get concerned about neutrophilia? When should that ring some alarm bells? Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, uh, neutrophilia, you know, is in that raised cell count category. And that the thinking process goes, is it reacting to something appropriately or is it being driven by a primary hematological problem? And with neutrophilia, the overwhelming amount of neutrophilia is reactive. And um, the, clu- you know, the clues clinically would be that they've got some other intercurrent illness. You know, they've just had a virus or they're not, you know, they're feeling unwell for some other reason or they're in hospital with pneumonia. And um, sometimes it can be, you know, they can get this marked uh, neutrophilia, especially if they're critically unwell, someone who's got multi-trauma or is in ICU with sepsis. And so, you know, a lot of the time that I see neutrophilia, there is an obvious explanation. If it's going to be a, uh, a primary hematology process, the most common such primary process is CML, chronic myeloid leukemia. A leukemia where there's an excess of mature myeloid cells, neutrophils, but also basophils and basophils and eosinophils, and that is perhaps one of the um, simplest clues in the workup of neutrophilia. If there are basophils um, also present in the peripheral blood, that is high, that patient is highly likely to have CML. They're highly likely to have a myeloproliferative neoplasm. The absence of basophils doesn't tell you that they don't, but the presence of basophils is a very, very strong clue. 
So the differential one. The other thing, critical. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it, it goes without saying that the presence of blasts on the film is, again, you know, it's, it's again, this, um, you know, very, very strong clue that's telling you that there's something else that's going on. Well, thank you very much. Now we've got, are you able to keep talking, Tom? I've sort of, I think, <laughs> I'm feeling, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm feeling think... in deep here. <laughs> I'm feeling great. Yeah, just be careful what you wish for. I reckon I'll go. Oh, that's go great. Oh, I, I love your passion too, Tom. I really do. Uh, lymphopenia. What can you tell us about lymphopenia? Uh, can yeah. Have a talk about that. Yeah. So I would say lymphopenia is the, the one on the on the list that I'm probably the least hot for. Um, it, when I get the lymphopenia call, I, it's very hard for me to get too excited about it, actually. Again, the majority of lymphopenias will be transient um, and benign, and, and there'll be some background history of some viral illness um, and where the repeat blood test goes away. I'd say if there's a danger diagnosis for lymphopenia, it's HIV. Okay. So when I get these calls, I go, just test them for HIV because, you know, that would be the most serious treatable cause for lymphopenia um, for an isolated lymphopenia. There are rarer other things. Um, you know, there are rare immunodeficiency disorders that could cause it, um, or there could be some drugs that they might be on that might be driving it. Again, methotrexate, chemotherapy, recent rituximab or steroids. Mm. But but that that's usually a fairly obvious clinical context. Yes. So I think azathioprine is something we see, you know, and uh, six mecaptopurin in terms of gastroenterology. Should we be yeah. worried about the lymphopenia? I, I guess it depends on what other cell lines are being affected by those drugs, for example. That would it, it yeah, might, absolutely. might indicate we need to back off and do drug levels and so forth. But it, it, how concerned? It sounds like you're not generally too worried about I, it, implications. Yeah, so that's right. So unlike neutropenia, there's a clear linear relationship between the neutrophil counts and the risk of serious infection. We don't really see that as much with lymphopenia. and um, you know, we, we've actually got lots of patients uh, on the in, in hematology world who have received rituximab, and they are chronically neutropenic and hypogammaglobulinemic. Um, they do have a modestly increased risk of infection. Some of those patients, especially if they have recurrent illnesses, will benefit from IVIG if they have measurable hypogammaglobulinemia. But the majority of them do just fine, and it, and it doesn't really carry the same acuity of risk that, that we see with neutropenia. So for me, uh, you know, look into drugs, test for HIV. If you're really, if you really want to be incredibly thorough, you can check immunoglobulins and consider again flow cytometry, looking for the lymphoid lymphocyte subsets to see which ones are low. But um, most patients will be well. Most patients will be due to a transient viral illness and will resolve on its own. Wait and watch. Expectant management. Lymphocytosis. Yes. Does that get you right? Yes. Yeah. So lymphocytosis um, follows a similar kind of rule to neutrophilia. Again, the most common driver is normally an intercurrent infection, and it can sometimes get very, very high. The famous cause for a super high lymphocyte count is pertussis that causes this kind of leukemoid-like reaction. But um, but if it's if there's no clear explanation for an infect with, with an infection, uh, and the lymphocytosis is persistent, you may ask yourself, do they have a lymphoproliferative disorder, of which there's a reasonably long list. The other clues that would point you in that direction would be the presence of weight loss, uh, other B symptoms, fevers, night sweats, or lymphadenopathy. Mm -hmm. Another test that might help you 
would be an LDH. Um, and if the LDH is high, especially if the LDH is in the thousands, uh, it does imply to you that there's some kind of fairly aggressive process with a high turnover of these lymphocytes that is more likely to be uh, a primary process like a lymphoma. The presence of splenomegaly would, again, be another real clue. If you, you know, put your hand on the belly and you can feel something right there under the uh, left costal margin, that's, again, a sign that this person probably needs imaging, probably needs to see a hematologist sooner rather than later. We didn't talk in the high white cell count category about what would make you go, wow, this is really dangerous. And, you know, aside from the obvious things like, a, you know, the, the fact that they've got a serious infection, I think the other thing that I ask myself is, do they have any symptoms of hyperviscosity or leukostasis? Again, visual changes, profound headaches, difficulty breathing. But to get those kinds of symptoms, and this is a kind of a, another useful trick, I think, to get those kind of symptoms, you normally have to have a white cell count in the area of 50 or above. And those symptoms are much more likely if the white cells that are elevated are of myeloid origin, okay. i.e. neutrophils, you know, basophils, eosinophils, mm. or, or blasts, or leukemic blasts. Right. In, by contrast, lymphocytosis, even if it's driven by a, a hematological malignancy like CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, those white cells can often be as high as 200 and they will not cause end organ damage. It's very, very unusual to mm. see end organ complications of, uh, of, a, of, of CLL or other lymphoproliferative disorders from the lymphocyte count in the blood alone. Okay. When it's really high, they may have other things going on, but from the, from the blood cells alone, very unusual. Well, thank you for covering that topic. That's another very interesting topic. We've got almost no time uh, that I'd like to cover with you. And that's uh -huh. platelet cell, platelet cell. You know, when yeah. you refer yeah. thrombocytopenia and thrombocythemia, we'll talk about. Take us thrombocyte, thrombocytopenia deficiency first up. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, I do I do feel that before we move on from lymphocytosis, to just to just say that um, if if you've got a well patient uh, who um, you can't find a good reason and the lymphocytosis persists. The next test is flow cytometry. Okay. Hematology. Flow cytometry will, will help you. And, and I think that is actually a test that the GP could reasonably order, and it may well come back and say, this person has CLL, this person has a follicular lymphoma or something like that, yeah. and, and, and that, that patient could be referred to clinic seen, you know, seen in a couple of weeks. Do well. Thank you for joining me in the conversation today with Dr. Thomas Liu, advanced trainee at the Peter McCombe Cancer Centre. His enthusiasm for haematology is just contagious. It made me feel like going and studying much more haematology and talking with him a great deal more. And I look forward to sharing more conversations. Now, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au. Thank you.